This is Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of God for the people of God. So this is the story that's typically known as the story of the rich young ruler. It's interesting that in Mark, the only attribution of this person is he is a man. It's rich from um, the context where we see him being confronted with these ideas about giving all that he has away to sell and to give to the poor. In Matthew, he is described as a young one, and then in Luke, he is described as a ruler. And here, we've kind of mashed all these up to get the story of the rich young ruler. Now, I think that that's, that's an okay idea of what's happening here, but at the core of what's going on here, this is a story about discipleship. It's a story about eternal life or ethics or money. It's a story about the kingdom. It's a story about salvation. We've seen throughout Mark's gospel this specific focus on discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus. And here again in this story, the author is honing in on what does it look like to pick up your cross, to deny yourself, and to follow Jesus. Here in this story, we see a lens through which um, the rich young ruler is showing himself to come up short. But in order to understand what Mark is wanting us to see specifically in this passage, we have to dip into first century Jewish culture. And everybody said a hearty amen, because we are digging deep into what the Bible is actually teaching us. And in order for us to do that, we cannot just settle for what's on the surface. Now, this rich young ruler is using a lot of the same lingo that we use in normal church settings. What must I do to inherit eternal life? 
For us, what must I do to be saved? What does it look like? And for those of you that have spent any time in church, you bring a lot of baggage with you to that question. Well, it looks like, you know, when I was growing up, it was the Romans road, or it was bow your heads, close your eyes, raise a hand when the evangelist says, do you want to follow Jesus? For some of you, it was this idea of, well, I don't want to go to hell for all of eternity, so I better give my life over to Jesus so I can go to heaven. But for, for many of us, it hasn't really been rooted in a radical call to discipleship, a radical call to follow who Jesus is. So we have to kind of cut through some of this to see what in the world Jesus and this guy are talking about in this particular context. And for us, we are going to center some of our conversations around eschatology, understanding what things are like in the end. Now, for those of you that have spent any time around TRP, you know that I am nuts about eschatology because this kind of frames how we live our life. The things that you believe about what will happen to you, for example, when you die or where we are all trying to go, radically impact how you live here and now. If your conversion was just raising a hand and saying, yes, I'll follow Jesus so that I can go to heaven, a lot of times that doesn't really root in any sort of meaningful shift in your life right here and right now because you've gotten that taken care of. And Jesus is wanting us to go beyond that to see what's happening here. Now, for the ancient Jewish audience, what, what's happening is they understood time in a linear scope. And for the ancient Israelites, they were waiting for God to do something dramatic within the scope of human history where God would show up and do away with sin and do away with death and do away with injustice and do away with suffering and do away with persecution and do away with oppression. They were waiting for the kingdom to show up. And once that happened, they would move from the age that is present into the age that is to come where they would be living the good life, where everything that God had planned would be coming to fruition for them. They had this linear idea, and there was this one climactic moment, and this rich young ruler just wanted to know simply, what do I need to do to be assured that I will be able to go into the age to come where things are good, and where justice is reigning and ruling, where we're not oppressed, where we're not bound by sin or by death? How can I be sure that I will be there? It says that the way the story begins, as Jesus started on his way, he's moving from this place where he has been doing some, some teaching, and he's beginning to go, and a man runs up to him and falls on his knees. This is an urgent question that this guy has. Teacher, what must I do to gain or to inherit eternal life? There's some, some key phrases that happen throughout this text that all kind of mean uh, similar things. Inheriting eternal life, having treasure in heaven, entering the kingdom of God, being saved. For the rich young ruler, what this meant was, how do I enter into the age to come? In other words, what this teacher wanted to know is, Jesus, what's your, what's your idea about the law? A few weeks ago when we were talking about the divorce passage, we talked about two Jewish rabbis Shammai and Hillel. They both had their own interpretations of Jewish law, and they were trying to figure out and to, have, to gain followers to teach them how they could live this out. Shammai was the more conservative of the two, and he said, listen, the only reason that you have to divorce your spouse is in the case of sexual infidelity. That's it. 
just that reason. Hillel was over here and he was kind of a mover and a shaker and a hippie liberal and he says, well, there's a lot more reasons than that. For example, if your wife burns your dinner, that's legitimate grounds for you to leave. This is real, this is, this is real Jewish teaching, this is not made up. If you don't find her attractive anymore, that's legit. You can just go ahead and find someone else. So we have these two different takes on Jewish law, Shammai very conservative and Hillel very much not conservative. And the question underneath of the question for the rich young ruler is, Jesus, what's your take on all of this? How do you understand the law? Because for any good Jew at this time, following the law would be the thing that allows you into the age to come. In addition, uh, what sort of movement, Jesus, are you leading? Because these guys, Shammai and Hillel, they both were trying to gain followers and they both were trying to teach people and take them in certain directions. So Jesus, what kind of, what kind of teaching are you wanting to impose on your followers? What, in other words, do I need to do if I want to follow you to be assured that I will go into the age to come? How are you understanding the law and what then do I have to do with that to make sure that I will be there. There's questions underneath of the questions for this um, individual. I think sometimes there's questions underneath of our questions too. What's the bare minimum that I need to do to make sure that I'll be okay when I die? What's the bare minimum? I think sometimes we're not so dissimilar from, from this guy. Jesus answers, and before he goes into the, his, his take on the law, he, he kind of leads into this esoteric, why do you call me good? No one is good but the Father. And scholars have kind of struggled over what exactly Jesus is referring to here, but it seems as though he's at least kind of putting himself in a place of solidarity with the people yet again, similar to the moment where he's being baptized. Like Jesus doesn't necessarily need to be baptized because he's repenting of sin, but he is showing solidarity with the people around him. And it seems as though he's, he's bringing some of that uh, to bear here as well. But this is what he launches into, and this is a weird answer to the man's question. What must I do? Well, you know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony or lie about people. Don't defraud. And then positively, honor your father and mother. These are well known because most of them are within the, the scope of the, the Ten Commandments. Now, most people will break up the Ten Commandments into two separate categories. The first four, which are about our relationship to God, and then the next six, which are more about how we interact with people. And Jesus is banking on these last six or so where he's looking at how um, people relate to one another. Don't kill or don't murder, that's commandment number six. Don't give false testimony, that's commandment number seven. Don't steal, that's commandment number eight. Don't give false testimony, that's commandment number nine. You shall not defraud. Now that one's not really in there, so scholars again have tried to figure out what in the world he's talking about here. But then he goes back to commandment number five, honor your father and mother. This is a classic answer that wouldn't have been really groundbreaking for this person, which is why it elicits the response I've been doing that. Jesus, I've been doing that since I was a boy. That doesn't really sound like that big of a deal. And then the text says that Jesus looks at this guy. And this verb is not just a glance. This verb is like a, a moment, a very awkward, weird moment between two people. Like he sees beyond the exterior into the very soul of this man and then it says, he loved him. 
It's interesting because in the book of Mark, this is the only time this verb is used in this context. This is the guy for Jesus in the book of Mark. He looks at him and sees what's going on and he loves him. And then he says, one thing you lack, my friend, go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Jesus is, some people would say, he's taking this idea and going back to the first couple of commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any idols or graven images. And for this particular individual, it seemed as though his money was the thing. And Jesus, in some weird way, could perceive that. But out of the care and compassion of his heart, he said, this is the thing. Now, when I was growing up, the way that I understood this was kind of like telepathic Jesus knows what's going on in this guy's mind, knows what's gonna happen at the end of the story, knows that he's gonna walk away sad, but still says this as a teaching moment for other people around. It's been interesting as I've been digging through some of the commentaries, um, one guy named R.T. France says this, and I think it's, a, it's an interesting lens to, wit, to view this story from. He says, the final demand that go and sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, uh, then come and follow me, is not meant to be a means of putting this guy off. Jesus actually wants him on board. It made me pause for a moment and ask this question that I hope doesn't come off as heretical, but in this interchange that Jesus has with the guy, what's he hoping for? How does the story really, and we see the guy walking away, but that moment that Jesus has with him, have we just kind of written him off always and forever, and what is Jesus hoping for? Like the way that R.T. Francis is putting it here is like Jesus is holding out hope, like come on, man, come on, man, come on, come on, come on, follow me, give everything away that you have, come on, we've got work to do, come on, this is good and you know it, you've seen the miracles, you've heard the teachings, you ran to follow me, you ran to be here to ask me this question, come on, come on, we've got stuff to do, partner with us, look at these guys behind me, they're crazy people, they would love to hang out with you, come on, let's go. Jesus like holding out hope that this guy would say, I will come and follow you. Jesus holding out hope that this person will respond to the call. I love this image of Jesus because it's one where it's, it's, it's taking these, these verbs as something worthwhile. Like he looks and he perceives and he sees and he loves this guy. Out of all the people in the gospel, this is the guy that he has an emotional connection with and wants, desperately wants him to follow him. Now, for Jesus, this is interesting because he says, come, we've got work to do. Come on, follow me. We've got things that we have to do. Jesus was not operating with the traditional idea of Jewish eschatology. It was not this age, and then at some point, some big moment would happen, and then you'd usher yourself into the age to come. Instead, watch this. This is a really sweet transition. Bam! Jesus was bringing in a moment that was this age and the age to come. It was a hybrid already and not yet. Jesus is bringing in the kingdom and you can see it. It's not something that's out there. It's I'm healing people and I'm teaching people and I'm ministering to people and the folks that were on the margins and the outskirts, they are brought in. The people that have been written off are family. They are part of my people and I will right the wrongs of this world. It is not just out there somewhere, and it is especially not just out there somewhere when you die. Jesus says, I'm bringing heaven to earth right now. Come on. 
We've got work to do. At this, the man's face fell. And he went away sad. And I think that's kind of shortchanging this guy's demeanor. Oh, man, that's too bad. I got a lot of money. No, it's, it's not just sad. It's, kind of, it's beyond that. But he realizes that he has great wealth. And what that really indicates is he realizes that he does not want to leave that behind. What Jesus is selling about this age and the age to come, what Jesus is selling about justice and grace and mercy and peace is not worth it to this guy because he's got too much stuff. Larry Hurtado says this about this particular passage, in ancient times and into the present, popular opinion argues that riches in themselves are no problem. A friend of mine just said this the other day, money is amoral. And that only when the wealthy man engages in evil practices is he in spiritual danger. In other words, what people are wanting to say is, money's not the issue, it's what you do with the money that's the issue. I think there's truth in that, but I want to, to lead us to a place that's not gonna be super sweet at the end of it, okay? So we've had this in the back of our minds and we've tried to figure out what in the world Jesus is talking about when he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter into the kingdom. It's easier for a camel, a huge load-bearing animal, to go through this eye of the needle than it is for somebody with possessions to say, you know what, I don't care, I will go wherever it is that you want me to go. So people have come up with ideas and, and ways to, to get around this teaching, in a sense. One popular way uh, that people have done, and not, nobody really ascribes to this, but still it's, it's out there. These are Greek words. The top one is kamelon, and the bottom one is kamelon, okay? So now some manuscripts, some, not many, but some, have the bottom word, which means rope. It's a big, fat kind of rope. It's not like yarn or anything that actually goes through needles. It's like pretty big. So still the chances of that going through the eye of a needle are small to zero. But still people say like, ah, but if it's a rope, see? That's easier than a camel, see? Other people, this one's much more popular. Maybe some of you, as you're sitting here, you've heard, well, in the ancient times, there was gates going into cities. That's true. And these gates sometimes had smaller doors in them that people would go through, and they were called the eye of the needle gate. That's not true. That was a mild piece of comedy that nobody, nobody got, but... That's the bit where, where it's not actually, we're not dealing with facts here. Yeah, they existed, but nobody at this time would have thought this was happening. So maybe you've heard that in these little small gates, if a camel would, like that the, the person would take the packs off of the camel, symbolic of leaving your wealth behind, and the camel would just kneel down, and perhaps that's symbolic of us like bowing down to Jesus. We could just like get that camel, shimmy him on through the little eye of the needle gate. Problem is, it didn't really exist, nor did anybody have any concept that this is what Jesus was talking about. In fact, in fact, there's other Jewish teaching that says it's easier for an elephant to get through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter into the kingdom. 
You see what's happening here. This is hyperbole for the point of, hey, Jesus, it's hard for rich people to get into heaven. That's the point that Jesus is making here. Now, for all of the wealthy people in the room, I'm, I apologize. I know that most of us are probably not, we're all like, yeah, okay, that, yeah, great. Hurtado, he goes on to say, like, after we've struggled to figure out what this text is, is about, he says, the force of this passage is precisely that riches in themselves are a hindrance to a person's participation in the kingdom of God, and that the mere accumulation of wealth and consequent attachment, I think that phrase is important, the consequent attachment, but I want to go a little bit farther and say, it's not that hard to become attached to money, possessions, to status, to popularity, to all sorts of these things. Don't miss that point. Don't think that as you sit here like, oh, I can be the exception to that. No problem. Maybe, but I think it's important to heed these words here. The mere accumulation of wealth and consequent attachment to it can prevent a person from following Jesus because when he lays down the gauntlet and says it's about serving the poor, it's about finding the people on the outskirts and the margins and inviting them in, it's about denying yourself, picking up your cross and following me, it ceases to be comfortable. It ceases to be the thing that we've turned it into. And Jesus, again, in this teaching of discipleship, is laying down a gauntlet for his people. The disciples say, who then can be saved? Because in their mindset, God's, God shows his, um, his blessing through the accumulation of wealth. Well, if the rich people can't get in, we're all screwed. Because in their mindset, that's how God blesses. But Jesus goes on to say, it, that's not how it's, it's working here. And he concludes this bit of teaching by saying, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And again, some people hear this and say, sweet, that means I can be rich. That means that he's saying it's not totally impossible for a camel to get through the eye of the needle. And again, we've played this game that I think has demonstrated something to be true about who we are. And this is the place where I'm taking us that's not necessarily easy to hear. One scholar says this, and I thought this was a really great way to put it, um, that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions. Because see, Jesus is dealing with one person. And some people would say this is not a universal um, teaching where everyone in this room should sell everything that they have, become homeless, and then just live off of other people. I don't think that's what Jesus is, is saying here, but that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions, give comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. Did you catch that? Any of us who are sitting here saying, Whew, well, I guess that means I can go ahead and accumulate wealth and I'll be okay. What this guy is saying, perhaps, 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 you're demonstrating yourself to be the type of person that as you're coming before Jesus, he would say, one thing you lack. Sell everything you have. Follow me. 
Now, I want to bring this to focus by asking three questions that I do think come from this passage. The first question is, are you all in? Leave the money stuff off to the side because most of us don't have it, but put something else in there. When Jesus shows up and you say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, well, you've got all this stuff. And he says, well, I've been doing that. If he says one thing you lack, what's your thing? Security, status, popularity, money, jobs, relationships, the things that we so desperately want that don't necessarily indicate anything about Jesus or his kingdom, the things that take space in our minds each and every day where Jesus is saying one thing, you lack, take care of this, and then come and follow me, because we've got work to do. We've got people who are broken. We've got people who need to be brought back into this family. We've got people who don't even believe that I can forgive them of their sins and bring them to wholeness. We've got things that we've got to do. There's injustices in the world that we can write together collectively by bringing people a new vision of who Jesus is and a new understanding of what church is and a new possibility about salvation. We've got work to do. What's the thing that is keeping us from that work? What's the thing that is keeping us from denying ourselves, picking up our crosses, and following Jesus? Question number two, what do you believe is possible? See, these guys, the disciples were blown away. Well, if that guy's not in, who the heck is going to be in? And Jesus says, with, with you guys, it's, it's impossible. With God, it's totally possible. Who are the people that you have written out of this story where Jesus is saying, stop. With me, I can bring them in. With me, I can totally melt their hearts and allow them to receive mercy and forgiveness and grace and love. Who are the people that you have kept out of your own life, perhaps? What are the ways in which you have said, God, that's great that you can do whatever you want, but I don't want you to do X or Y or Z because it's hard and because it'll hurt and because they don't deserve it. Jesus has this teaching which at the core, and we've said this a few times, it's radically inclusive. He's fighting for people to come in that maybe other people wouldn't have expected. And he's not just opening up the doors, he's, he's demanding things of them. If you want to follow me, then you must do this. Third question, who's in your family now? Now this doesn't make sense until we look at this last couple of verses in this passage where Jesus says, hey man, we've left everything to follow you. We're cool, right? Yeah, sure, Peter, that's great. And then he goes into this teaching, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields, it's interesting here that he's pulling in um, fields like this land ownership and status and kind of maybe symbolic of the rich guy, 
Whoever's left all this stuff for me and for the gospel, will receive, will, that person will not fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. And these are the things, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and field, and Mark's kind of a sneaky guy. I got a lot of persecutions. But in the age to come, eternal life. Here's the, here's the kicker. Jesus is saying, if, you have, if you're with me, you will receive a hundredfold now. I think that we've kind of misinterpreted this to sweet. Well, that means I can drive a nice car and have a nice house or do all these great things or get whatever cool clothes I want. But what Jesus is, is showing us here is it manifests itself in family. It manifests itself in if you have forsaken mom or dad or brothers or sisters or whatever, that you will have a hundredfold that in the kingdom of God. What's your family look like now? The reason why I bring this up is because as we think about the church, this one, other ones, I know that there are still people that are here, but they are not really here. There are people that are occupying space, but when you say, have you received a hundredfold family that will be behind you and advocate for you and just be there when you need them, I know a lot of people would say, no, I feel alone. How are we as the church allowing this to be true of us in this room and to a bigger understanding like us as the capital C church where, where Christians feel family. Because what I see, what I see is a lot of in-house fighting. What I see is a lot of these people are out because they believe X. What I see is a lot of these petty differences that we have where we are not demonstrating this to be true of ourselves because we are building up walls with our brothers and our sisters not for the sake of the gospel, but for our own sake. May that not be true of us. Who is in your family? I hope that when we see this, there's like these big, huge questions that Jesus is bringing to the table here. It's, are you all in? Where you sit right now, have you been able to say, Jesus, whatever you want, you can have it, I am yours. We will fall on our face, yes. But that call of, will you follow me? Have you ever answered it? Have you ever answered it in a way where you've said, I will leave this behind if that's what you want from me? This text also brings to bear questions of who is in our family and how we've built up walls and what it looks like for us to live into this idea of we will receive a hundredfold brothers, sisters, family. Are we allowing that to be true of us here and now? Throughout Mark, he just keeps hammering home, especially in this, these couple of chapters here from eight to 10, radical discipleship. It is my hope that as we spend time with Jesus and hear him teaching and we see him looking at these people and loving them, that it's no different for us. He is looking at you and loving you and saying, come on, we've got work to do. 
and I need you. I hope that tonight we can see our potential impact and we can be inspired to leave whatever it is that we have behind and to follow Jesus with everything that we have. And I hope also that we can begin to break down walls and we can begin to live as family. Not a family at odds, but a family that will advocate for one another, that will live in community together, and that will love in a way that will change this world. Let's pray. God, you're good. Sometimes we have to keep saying that over and over because the difficulties that we have in our life um, demonstrate something altogether different, but I ask that you would allow us to see how good you are this evening. God, we're thankful for just the gauntlet that you have laid down, and it hasn't been something that's abstracted from your love for us, where you look at us and you love us and you say, there's one thing that you might lack. Leave it and follow me. And God, I ask that you would just work in our hearts, that if that's where we are, where we are reticent to give those things up, that you would completely melt away our own selfish desires and that we would follow you wherever you're taking us. Allow us to see the difficult things and to run after them. Allow us to see the hard things and to work for reconciliation and restoration. Allow us to see the broken things and fight for wholeness together with your spirit and with our brothers and our sisters side by side. Let us advocate for one another in a way that shows your unity and your goodness. Allow us to be a different image of your church. Allow us to be a different image of your son. Allow us to be those who love, who forgive. God, we are thankful for the work that you've done in our lives. Help us not to be riddled with guilt, but help us to see the things that we need to leave behind. God, as we begin to move towards communion, I ask that we would contemplate on some of those things that are barriers and that we would begin to do work to remove them. God, help us again to catch an image of unity as we move from our aisles to walk down this red carpet to receive the body and blood of your Son. Allow us to be changed and transformed in a way that will change and transform this world and allow everything that we say and do to bring glory and honor to your name. We ask these things all in Jesus' name. Amen.